This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Navigating Parkinson's disease can be challenging, but we're here to help. Welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast. Tune in as we discuss what you should know today about Parkinson's research, living well with the disease, and the Foundation's mission to speed a cure. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a new podcast series of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, Parkinson's Science POV. This is a new addition to our robust podcast offerings, such as our series about living well with PD, hosted by our patient council member, Larry Gifford, and reruns of our popular Third Thursdays webinars. I'm Maggie Cool, Vice President of Research Communications, and with me are our Chief Scientific Officers, Dr. Brian Fisk and Dr. Mark Frazier. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Hey, Maggie. Thanks for having us. So in this series, together, the three of us are going to take on research progress and strategy. What milestones are we celebrating and how will we get to the next? So this perspective from both of you and your seats as CSOs comes from this unique position in Parkinson's research. You two must know what is going on across the field. What are patients' greatest needs? What's happening in the pipeline? What are the opportunities and the challenges? So I think you two are really positioned for our patient audience to talk about the perspective of the foundation and the strategy that comes from that knowledge across the field. So beyond just your titles, what makes you qualified to know and direct Parkinson's strategy? So Brian, uh, why don't you just introduce yourself to our listeners? You joined MJFF uh, let me look at my calendar, uh, 2004. And what's kept you here ever since? Yeah, exactly. So I've been here 2004. I think it's a, you know, a little over 17 years now. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. I, in graduate school, I studied, you know, brain development, basically, you know, was very interested in how sort of brain cells connect to each other and develop, especially in those first, you know, few months after birth. And I knew back then, even then, that I didn't want to really follow the the normal academic route. So, you know, I left sort of the, the traditional lab environment, uh, you know, soon after my graduate career uh, and played around a little bit in science publishing and then really had that opportunity in 2004 to begin working with the foundation. And at that stage, you know, the foundation was just a few years, you know, on its feet. It really just kind of gotten started. And and back then, I think we were figuring out what our strategic plan was going to be, you know, for addressing Parkinson's disease. And so it was a really exciting time for me to be a part of that, that early sort of development stage of the foundation and sort of see it grow and help shape a lot of those programs and, and sort of, you know, learn with the foundation as it was growing about what the challenges were and how we could address them. And I think, you know, as a scientist, you know, obviously being interested in the science is one aspect of it, but I think being able to use that science to help you know, help the foundation, you know, achieve its mission, I think was for me always been very compelling. Mark, you've been helping the foundation achieve its mission since 2004 when you joined the foundation. So what brought you here and kept you? Well, first of all, I'm not that old. Brian's <laughs> uh, more experienced than I am. Uh, it was 2006 that yeah. I joined so he's a little bit ahead of my time, but um, I think I actually hired you, if I recall. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I came to work for Brian and the foundation was 
I came from a drug development uh, job where, and the reason I took both of those jobs was to apply what I learned in the lab to really have an impact uh, on people and specifically people with Parkinson's disease. Um, I didn't want to just focus on one niche area of research, I think similar to Brian. So having an impact on people living with Parkinson's disease was really exciting as an opportunity. And sitting at the nexus where the foundation sits across research, um, working with industry, government, uh, academics, universities, and really trying to drive the research agenda was also an exciting opportunity. And we haven't gone out of business. We haven't cured the disease, um, which is one of the reasons I'm still here. So 2004, 2006, and 2013 for me, I, I think what's kept us here is really the optimism, the progress and the optimism of what's to come and the speed that we are going to reach our goal of a world without Parkinson's disease. Now, optimism is a word we use a lot at the foundation. It's a tenet of our strategy. I think it allows us to take big risks, go after big rewards. And today we want to talk about three reasons to be optimistic about Parkinson's research this year and really focused on advances in therapies. We all talk to and meet people with Parkinson's and their families, and that's what they want. That's what we want. New treatments for every stage of the disease, for people who are recently diagnosed, who've been living with Parkinson's for decades, and for the family members and, and other people at risk. Hopefully, there will be a day when no one has to receive a Parkinson's diagnosis. So how are we going to reach that? Why don't we dive in? Um, and Brian, I'm going to throw it to you to talk about the therapies that help people live better with Parkinson's today, symptomatic treatments. What's your perspective on the availability of symptomatic treatments? What's to come? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, obviously addressing the symptoms of Parkinson's is a big, you know, part of delivering cures. You know, obviously we want to be able to uh, ultimately slow the disease down, stop it, maybe even prevent it. But, you know, while we are still trying to figure that out, uh, if we could just make people's lives easier, uh, by addressing and sort of, you know, reducing some of the symptoms, that's obviously very key. You know, it's a, exciting for Parkinson's in that we do actually have available therapies that can address at least some of the symptoms of, of the disease and, you know, predominantly mostly the, the movement problems people have. And, you know, uh, for those who, who might be listening who have Parkinson's or, you know, care for someone with Parkinson's, you know, most of you, you know, are, are well aware of these treatments. They target a, a brain chemical called dopamine, which is, you know, uh, one of the chemicals uh, the cells that produce dopamine, uh, you know, are sort of degenerating people with Parkinson's and loss of that, that chemical can lead to some of the movement problems that people have. And so we can actually give people back some of that dopamine with some of the uh, treatments that are available today. And that's, you know, was just a huge game changer for, for the field. Um, it doesn't stop the disease. It doesn't cure the disease, uh, you know, and over time, you know, even those treatments uh, don't work quite so well over time. And so what we've seen, we're seeing now a lot in the pipeline is people, you know, companies working on ways to optimize some of those treatments, including some of those original dopamine treatments, where, where the goal now is to try to deliver them better or uh, deliver them in different ways that can reduce some of the potential side effects and complications that the, the current treatments have. And you know, I think that's one sort of perspective of the pipeline that's really powerful because I think it takes what we know already and what we know works in people with Parkinson's and tries to improve it and make it better and make it last longer and be more effective for longer. So that's one uh, perspective. I think the other one is that we're seeing um, uh, people 
you know, innovate in other ways around some of the symptoms. So including some of the non-motor symptoms. And, and I think that was a real shift, you know, in the two decades that the foundation's been around, one of the things I definitely saw shift was this kind of understanding that Parkinson's isn't just about the movement problems and that there are these other symptoms that we have to deal with. And so, you know, luckily we've started to see, you know, companies and drug makers, you know, appreciate that as well. And so, you know, our perspective in the pipeline now is that we, we, we see, you know, movement towards trying to address some of those symptoms. And there's been a few approved inversions, uh, you know, treatments that are focused on things like, uh, you know, uh, a low blood pressure problem that some people with Parkinson's have or treatments that focus on psychosis, which can be a, a problem later in the disease stage when, uh, and sort of a complication of, of, of Parkinson's treatment. And uh, so we're seeing companies get really interested in that. And it's, it's a harder sort of um, pipeline to develop because we don't have this deep an understanding of the biology underlying some of those non-motor symptoms, uh, not quite like we do around the dopamine and sort of the movement problems. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of, I think, sort of progress and promise there. And so I think, you know, for me, that's one of the other uh, perspectives is that, you know, when you look at that sort of diversity of that symptom treatment type pipeline, um, that we're starting to see that those different approaches being developed for, for Parkinson's. And that's really exciting. And Brian, you said that, you know, we don't know as much about the biology of some of those symptoms. So Mark, how are we going to change that and learn more about the biology or find other ways around that? Well, it starts with the person with Parkinson's. It starts with the patient, right? And understanding and listening to them about what matters, what symptoms they're experience, experiencing, understand what might be unique to Parkinson's disease, and then what might just be normal aging that we all experience. And, you know, uh, collecting information that is patient reported is really important. So we start there, but then I think we use that then to inform some more laboratory experiments and uh, dive into the biology a little bit to model some of these symptoms that we hear from the patients that are important, like constipation, like depression, like some cognitive issues, uh, memory changes, and uh, really understand what changes in the brain um, when these symptoms develop or what changes in the body when these symptoms develop. And um, by modeling them, we can then mimic in animal models and identify specific underlying biological targets that we can then uh, prosecute and then go after you using uh, small molecules or or non-pharmacological in interventions. And so starting with the patient and then understanding the biology, uncovering new targets, really to dissect, you know, this complex puzzle of different symptoms, different constellation of experiences is the way to go. And we've we've actually made a lot of progress in that area. We're continuing to fund a lot of basic biology and expect to continue to support more biology around these really hard to treat symptoms like falling and gait, et cetera. So some treatments and development with what we know and some strategies to help us learn more. And Mark, a lot of what we know about Parkinson's biology to date has really informed another class of therapies, which are those that aim to slow or stop progression overall, as we were discussing, really you know, stop Parkinson's in its tracks, curative really. So how has our understanding of Parkinson's grown and led us to the state of the pipeline today? 
Well, I, I always like to start with some of the genetic discoveries that have really uncovered some of the um, really high priority targets in Parkinson's disease. They've helped researchers understand what pathways go wrong in Parkinson's disease. And then with that understanding, really to, to develop um, molecules that go after those um, proteins that go awry in Parkinson's. So there's really been a genetic revolution in the last um, couple of decades, really, that have um, yielded a number of diverse drugs that we think might slow the or stop the progression of the disease that really um, target what we think are the underlying um, biological causes of Parkinson's disease. So it's really been a sea change. And Brian, what's next for this strategy to stop Parkinson's? I should say strategies because yeah. I think that's the point, right? right. It's going to be a lot of them. Yeah, I know. You know, I think as we're building this, you know, deeper understanding of, you know, what it means to be at risk for Parkinson's and sort of, you know, what are the signals and the, and the features and the, you know, what's the sort of the algorithm, if you will, that we could deploy to say, you know, you're someone who has a high likelihood of developing Parkinson's over the next several years. You know, with that in, you know, in place, we can actually start to design clinical trials to then test interventions. And so, you know, understanding how to find those people and, you know, obviously understanding how to communicate with those people and, you know, get them interested in this type of research is of course part of the challenge. But once you have that in place, you can start to actually develop those trial designs that would allow you to test potentially an intervention that over a period of time, you could then track and see whether or not people on that, you know, taking that therapeutic, whether they go on to develop Parkinson's or not, or, you know, sort of the, the full motor movement problems of Parkinson's. And I think if, you know, in doing that, that just gives us, you know, an ability to really test that idea. Can we slow the onset or prevent the onset of, of the movement uh, aspects of Parkinson's? And it's a really powerful, I think, concept because, you know, if we can do that, you can take that same prevention concept actually and apply it to other, you know, parts of the Parkinson's journey. So you don't have to necessarily do it in people at risk. You could do a similar type of trial design, for example, in people you know, later in the disease and look for ability to delay onset of you know, other key aspects of the disease too. And so I think that's something else that we've been looking at as well is about how can we think about Parkinson's in those later stage milestones and think about preventative strategies at that level as well. But I think this, you know, initial effort to try to develop this and design this platform for how you can do that, I think will be really powerful because we'll learn a lot about, you know, what works and doesn't work. Mark, you're going to jump in? I was just going to jump in. I think Brian's point is really important that we can talk about prevention of Parkinson's, which is revolutionary. I don't think we would imagine talking about this five, 10 years ago, but the same strategy can be applied in different aspects of Parkinson's. And, you know, we're funding this study, the Parkinson's Progression Marker Initiative, PPMI for short, and it is collecting this really deep data on people at different stages of the disease. And some of the data emerging from the study is identifying certain factors early in the disease within the first two years of being diagnosed that may predict certain symptoms to develop later down the road. And so, as Brian said, I think you can use these features to identify individuals, for example, that might be at risk or at high risk for developing cognitive impairment and develop a 
cognitive prevention trial or um, some individuals that are at risk for developing falls that may have balance issues and try to prevent the balance issues from developing. So it's just an exciting time using data from people with Parkinson's disease and that have identified features that we think you know, can design these clinical trials more effectively and, and ultimately, hopefully, prevent the disease from occurring. Yeah, actually, that's exactly what I was going to say that, you know, we sort of think of prevention as the motor, but if we could prevent these other really troubling aspects of the disease that do impact quality of life, impact independence, I think that would be a a clear success in in one regard. Uh, But again, I I don't want to lose sight of our mission, which is to end Parkinson's and go out of business, which, which would potentially mean the motor symptoms as well. So if we could go back to the prevention trials, people, uh, potential trials of people who have not yet received a Parkinson's diagnosis, who have some clinical symptoms perhaps, but don't have the cardinal motor symptoms yet. Mark, what would those therapies look like? What are we working toward? Yeah, well, I think it's important to just remind everyone that the why this is possible and it's possible as Brian alluded to, for three main reasons, three main advances. One is um, there have been techniques and methods to um, identify individuals at risk for developing Parkinson's through certain genetic testing or um, symptoms like smell loss or sleep changes that increase the likelihood that someone might develop Parkinson's. It's not a guarantee. It's not 100%, but it at least uh, allows researchers to identify individuals that have a greater risk for developing Parkinson's. Um, the second activity is having these objective markers that sort of we know through data that change prior to um, developing some of the motor symptoms. So for example, there is a a brain imaging scan that's called a DAT scan. This measures these, the dopamine cells that are lost that Brian talked about in Parkinson's. And in a certain percentage of individuals uh, that are at risk for developing Parkinson's, we know DAT scan is abnormal. So it looks like Parkinson's disease, even though they may not have symptoms. So having these objective markers is really an important tool and advance that um, enables these prevention trials to be imagined and, and, uh, and for the researchers to start planning them. Um, the third one is just having these treatment options, having these um, new therapies that are not yet approved, but they're in clinical testing. And as I said, we think they target the underlying biology of Parkinson's. And so having the treatments available that might be able to be deployed into a prevention trial um, is a really important advance. And so what those prevention trials might look like, and this is very early days, and I think it's important to emphasize this is likely to be what we call proof of concept, right? It's just demonstrating that individuals can be found Um, The trial can be executed and it may or may not show a benefit, but what likely the trials would look like would be finding individuals at risk through some of the mechanisms I described, smell loss, sleep changes, or genetic mutations, using these biomarkers like a brain dopamine scan and confirming that 
they have abnormal or lower dopamine than um, uh, healthy individuals. And enrolling them in a trial that um, one group is given a placebo, another group is given uh, a treatment, um, and following those individuals over 12, 18, 24 months. And since they don't have Parkinson's disease yet, the question is, what would you actually measure? What would you measure that might or might not change with a drug intervention? And, and right now, what we would measure is the, the brain scan, the, the dopamine scan. We know it changes over time, particularly early in uh, disease course. So um, the outcome would be um, whether this particular drug or intervention actually slows or stop this deterioration that is observed with the dopamine scan. Um, like I said, there, there may or may not be symptoms developed, but the outcome um, in the prevention trial, at least the first one, would be this uh, dopamine brain scan. And if it did slow or stop the progression, then that would indicate that it is doing something to the underlying biology of Parkinson's and potentially uh, slowing the disease process. Go ahead, Brian. No, I just, I was going to, you know, from what Mark was saying too, I think one of the powerful um, parts of this too is thinking about, you know, our understanding of kind of the biology and the sort of biological progression of the disease, you know, thinking about the types of treatments that might be most useful, you know, at this very early stage of Parkinson's, again, where, you know, again, these are people who aren't really exhibiting symptoms, might have some of the underlying biological features, like the dopamine scan uh, that Mark mentioned, uh, changes in that. So you, you want to make sure that we're then using treatments that are targeting biology that we think matters at that stage. And so, you know, there are, we do know in the sort of current therapeutic pipeline for Parkinson's that there might be some options. You know, we might want to explore, for example, some of the treatments that are targeting uh, accumulation of the protein alpha synuclein in the brain, for example. That's a really, you know, leading theory for one of the uh, the causes of Parkinson's, or at least some some aspects of Parkinson's, and so that would be a good candidate to think about how we could target that mechanism. Or others think there might be um, you know strong uh, role of the immune system in sort of the you know triggering early Parkinson's, and so you know we would might want to think about treatments that can target that mechanism. So there may be a variety of actual treatment options we could think about putting into uh, you know, a prevention trial like this. And, and so actually some of the thinking and strategy we're starting to put in place is not just the you know, design of the, the specific study and the interventions, but also the platform we might be able to do this in. You know, could we actually test multiple treatments in parallel in an at-risk population to see which ones you know, are showing the most promising uh, potential? And so that I think there's some advances in even how we do this type of trial you know, with multiple treatments uh, that we're starting to work through as well. So I think it's a re really exciting times to see how this uh, will all work out. So it sounds like you need to decide what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, but you have pretty good leads on both of those. And so we're we're going to be working on that this year. I started off saying we were going to talk about a couple of reasons to be really optimistic about the foundation's research strategy and vision. I think that is one, a solid plan. I tell my four-year-old often we have to make a plan. It <laughs> sounds like we have a plan for prevention. We also have a, a plan or, or an acknowledgement and getting the right tools to prevent other troubling aspects of the disease in progression, falls, cognition issues. 
And then similarly in, in symptomatic, I think the fact that we do have a diverse portfolio across approaches, across symptoms, and that we have the, the strategy and the opportunities in place to discover more and to leverage those findings to new therapies um, is what I'm taking away from this conversation. Maggie, can I um, make a point on that last one? You know, you may ask, why do you need so many options even for um, dopaminergic replacing dopamine or providing dopamine strategies? And the answer is that this is such a snowflake disease that different people respond to different treatments. And the human body is a complex organism and the brain is a complex organ. And um, it is just a benefit to have multiple different tools in a doctor's toolbox to try different strategies for treatment. And some certainly respond better to others. And the reasons for that are, are currently not understood, but having um, more diverse options, I think is, is really important and, and a good thing. Yeah. And that's why we need so many people to participate in research. And you said it earlier, Mark, that this all starts with people with the disease. There are so many different types of disease, Brian, you were talking about the many different biological processes at play and the myriad of ways that we need to go after this onset and progression. So I want to um, thank you both for your time and tell our listeners that, as I said, this is the, the first of hopefully many of these sessions. Mark, Brian, and I will be back soon to share more research updates. And if you would like to lend your own experience to Parkinson's research and progress toward cures, you can join our PPMI study that Mark mentioned. You can learn more at michaeljfox.org slash podcast dash PPMI. It's also linked in the show notes. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you will share it with your networks, rate and review us. Your support means so much. On behalf of all three of us, thank you so much for listening and hope to join you again soon. Thanks for listening. Community members like you are bringing us closer than ever to a world without Parkinson's disease. Learn how you can support the Michael J. Fox Foundation in its mission at michaeljfox.org. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.